There's, uh, there's more parallels here between what Solomon did and what was done later and what will yet be done in the future. So I want to uh, hang with that a bit. <clears throat> we wound up yesterday in chapter 4 where he talked about everyone living under their vine and fig tree for 40 years of peace under Solomon. And I submit that in some respects, that was a microcosm of the millennium, uh, because the millennium is a time of peace, and there have been very, very few peaceful times of any length in the history of mankind. There's always been adversity, conflict, war, and that has been true throughout your life and mine. Off and on, we are at war, whether you and I are or not. Uh, the forces of the United States military most of the time are. But in this time, Judah and Israel dwelt safely from one end of the kingdom to the other. Now, in verse 26 of chapter 4, he says Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So he had quite an army there. He didn't need to use it. That's the beauty of it. And that will be true, ultimately, of the kingdom of God. Uh, maybe not chariots, and maybe not physical horses, but an army of angels, always about the throne of God. So if there was any defense needed, a defense is there. And indeed, a defense has been needed in the past, because Satan and a third of the angels did rebel against God, and there was war in heaven. And God wants peace, and he restored peace at his throne by putting down Satan and those angels in a victory over them. Uh, it was not a matter of blood, because nobody died. It was a matter of control. Satan tried to take control. He does. He uses the same things with us today. He, yes, he loves to kill us because we're physical human beings, and that can be accomplished. But his real war is for control. Control of our minds and our actions. That's what he desires and seeks. And whether or not he's allowed to kill us, if he has control of our mind, our emotions, and our actions, what more really does he need? Because we will die anyway and not be given eternal life if we do not have ourselves under control spiritually and emotionally. So God does not at this point need an army, but he is going to have one last battle with Satan. And... He will have peace in his kingdom. Satan will be put down and he and his demons chained forevermore, according to what we read in Scripture. Now, Solomon also, in that sense, is a type of Christ. Let's read on down in verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, when he says largeness of heart, that means that he had a heart, a mind to help, 
to give, to serve, to love, largeness of heart. You know, that's not what's pictured by the Grinch in the Christmas stories where he was small-hearted. Pull it into me, and I will have what I want. No, God gave Solomon largeness of heart as the sand of the sea. That's pretty large. <laughs> that is quite giving and loving and kind and gentle and helpful toward the people under it. <clears throat> now, that's the kind of love and mercy and kindness and so on that Christ himself will have. Largeness of heart is the sand of the sea. So there is a direct type here. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. God had given him the ability to discern, to see through, to come up with the right judgments that were good for everybody involved. Quite a, quite a thing. And name some that he was wiser than. And at the end of the verse, his fame was in all nations round about. Now, that was part of what helped bring the peace. Is that people saw and heard the judgments of Solomon. And they feared him. Because when someone has that kind of wisdom, that kind of ability, that kind of discernment, how are you going to fight that? <laughs> how do you go up against that? And he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. We got the book of Proverbs back here, much of which he wrote, and they all depict incredible wisdom. But he spoke many more than that. 3,000 here it says. And his songs were a thousand and five. So he wrote incredible music, songs as well. And he spoke of trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of fowl and creeping things and of fishes. So he had wisdom and understanding and discernment about everything here in the creation. God gave him that oversight and that ability to comprehend and grasp. We have scientists all over the world now that are still studying insects and animals trying to figure out about them. Solomon got it. He had it. He knew it. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. So God, when he said he would grant him wisdom and understanding, uh, he did it out of largeness of heart. He gave him an incredible understanding and wisdom. Now, you and I don't have that kind of, of wisdom and understanding, but we're gaining it. And when we are made spirit beings, we will have more than Solomon did, because we will understand on a spiritual level the things that we have trouble with on a physical level. So, there's some things there about Solomon's kingdom that go forward into all the eras after that, and including here at the end. God is going to give incredible wisdom and understanding 
to go to the whole world and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and to try to help people understand who God is. So that is going to require a lot of understanding of Scripture and inspiration from God. Anyway, in chapter 5, here over the next two or three chapters, I'm not going to uh, read it all uh, in detail, but uh, Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, for he had heard he was king, and Hiram was ever a lover of David. They were very close. And then Hiram told him, or, or Solomon said, You know how that David, my father, couldn't build a house. God told David, You won't build it because you enjoy shedding blood too much. So even David, though David had very many wonderful traits and the kind of mind that God joined with, a man after his own heart in so many ways, and yet there were some areas where David had a proclivity for things that weren't godly, and he loved to kill too much. So he says, because of that, I won't let you build the temple, but your son Solomon will build it. So he put some restrictions, some punishments on David, and yet overall, David was the kind of man that God couldn't help but love the kind of man that Jonathan couldn't help but love as a very close brother. So anyway, uh, Solomon showed that he was going to build a house. Now that made Hiram very happy. Verse 10, he gave Solomon cedar trees and fir trees according to all his desires. So Hiram had a lot of trees. I don't know whether these came from the Pacific Northwest or from somewhere in this neighborhood here closer uh, when there were more of those things at that time. And then Solomon gave Hiram uh, wheat and food and all kinds of things. And Solomon raised up, in verse 13, 30,000 men and sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by course, to cut down trees, to prepare wood, to build a temple. Uh, Verse 16, he had 3,300 overseers to keep track of the work. Verse 17, the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and huge stones to lay the foundation of the house. They prepared the stones and so on. And then he began to build a house. Verse 7 of chapter 6, The house, when it was in building, was built of stone, made ready before it was brought there. So they knew exactly what size they wanted it, and shape they wanted it, and they had it all made, and then transported it to the temple so that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. Prefab, we call it today. Made the parts, sent them in, and then assembled it. And he talks about it some. Uh, Verse 12, then, the word of God came to Solomon and said, Concerning this house which you are building, 
If you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then while I perform my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Now this is language similar to what he uses there in uh, Haggai and Zechariah. He adjures us all to keep his commandments and his judgments, tells Joshua, if you will diligently obey and keep my commandments, then I'll perform my work with you, and these, this will be yours. So, uh, with Zerubbabel, he tells him, not by might, not by po- uh, power of man, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. So he gives the same instruction to the end-time leaders who were commissioned to build the temple that he did to Solomon. So the pattern is here. And always, at every time, in every era, whenever people were going to do a work for God, they had to obey God. That's all there is to it. And you read through the New Testament, and all it is is obey God and keep His commandments and walk as Christ walked. Uh, those apostles built a church. Those were the things they thought, and that's the way they walked. So wherever you go, you find this. Let's see in verse 15. And he built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, both the floor of the house and the walls of the ceiling, and he covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with planks of fir, This would have been a beautiful house, all wood inside. There's a verse in here somewhere, I might see it and I might not, where it says that they had the stone, the framework was stone, thick stone, and then it was all covered completely with wood, so that you could see no stone, it says. Left no stone uncovered. We use that expression. And it was uh, carved wood as well. Verse 18, the cedar of the house within was carved with knops and open flowers, and all was cedar. There was no stone seen. So there's that verse. Then what else did he do? So we started with a foundation of stone, walls of stone, covered it all with wood. That must have smelled good. A cedar chest, only this big, sure smells good. What would a whole house made of fresh-cut cedar smell like? Wow. Would have been impressive. Now what did he do? Let's see. Second part of verse 20. He overlaid it with pure gold, and so covered the altar which was of cedar with pure gold. So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold, And he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house, also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. Within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive trees, ten cubit high. Uh, Five cubits was the wing. A cubit was a foot and a half. Uh, 
and the other carib, he describes it, ten cubits. And verse 28, he overlaid the carabims with gold and carved all the, heart, uh, the walls of the house with carved figures of carabims and palm trees and open flowers within and without. And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. And for the entering of the oracle, he made doors of olive trees, lintel, side post. And the two doors were also of olive trees, and I said, and they, he overlaid them with gold toward the end of verse 32. Uh, verse 35, he carved cherubims and palm trees and open flowers and covered them with gold fitted upon the carved work. <coughs> And it took seven years to do this into verse 38. That's beyond our imagination, but remember the Ark of the Covenant that Moses made. God gave very explicit directions on how to do that, and then it was overlaid with gold. Here you have Solomon's temple built, and everything there was overlaid with gold. That's all you could see was gold. Any and everywhere. That took a lot of gold. It's a big house. <laughs> That's a lot of gold. And I don't think they just put it as thin as they could. I imagine they overlaid it very thickly so that no wood showed through, no nothing, but all you could see was 24 karat gold. Wow. What an impressive thing. All right, let's go to Ezra 6. I want you to see the pattern that God uses. This will become important. Ezra chapter 6. Here, the Jews had gotten out of the 70 years of captivity, and Cyrus had determined uh, from chapter 1 that they should go and build the temple of God. Now remember that Ezra, I mean that uh, King Cyrus was the son of Ahasuerus, king of Persia, and Esther, uh, an Israelite. She had married him. Remember when there was in the book of Esther, where the king was looking for a new wife, and it turned out to be an Israelite girl named Esther. So uh, Cyrus was their son, and yet he was had conquered. Babylon and took over the captivity of Israel. And Daniel then went to work for Cyrus. <clears throat> so Cyrus was there, who was half Israelite. And it says in first chapter 1, verse 1, that God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. And he said, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, the whole Babylonian empire, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, Daniel understood that this was to be done. And I'm sure he told Cyrus, You know, you're the son of Esther, you're half Hebrew, and... God wants a temple built, and you're the man that is supposed to handle this. So, he did. 
He was kindly toward the Jews, obviously. His mother was Esther. So he asked for volunteers, verse 5, to go build the house of the God which is in Jerusalem. And then Cyrus took five months to get here from over there in that Babylon uh, and here to build this. And that's about a five-month trip across the Atlantic Ocean. Anyway, that's another story. But there were, verse 64 of chapter 2, 42,303 score people who came. And God gave them skill and ability to do the work. Now, I want to go down to uh, 6 here in light of what we just read in 1 Kings uh, chapter, uh, verse 3 of chapter 6. The first year of Cyrus, uh, he made a decree, which we just saw, concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, and said, Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid. And he gave the height threescore cubits and the breadth threescore cubits, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber. Remember Haggai says, go to the mountains and bring wood to build the house of God. Speaking of the end time temple. So that's what was done here as well. And also let the golden silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought again to the temple, which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place, and place them in the house of God. So here they're bringing the golden vessels, brass vessels, silver vessels, back. Now, we have a decree because there were enemies who tried to stop this. Didn't want it to happen. And here's the decree of Artaxerxes, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 7, where he says to Ezra the priest, uh, offers peace, and I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of the priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with you. You are sent of the king. He was uh, confirming what had been done and people tried to get rid of and destroy. But Cyrus, I think at this point, was gone, and Artaxerxes had looked up the record. And he says in verse 15 then, to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold that you can find in all the province of Babylon... He gave them permission to go throughout the Babylonian kingdom, which included most of the world, and gather up all the gold they could find. Now, David had gathered gold and silver and all these things together to build a temple, knowing he wouldn't, but Solomon would. And it had been gathered up from all over to build Solomon's temple. So when Solomon built it, he had an abundance of gold to do it with. And here, it's decreed to take all of it, whatever you can find, and the free will offerings of the people and the priests, offering willingly for the house of their God in Jerusalem. 
And then he tells them to use money from the treasury to buy bullocks and rams and lambs, meal offerings, drink offerings, and offer them on the altar. Verse 18, And whatsoever shall seem good to you and to your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, that do after the will of God. So he says, you take it, you use it, I'm not going to oversee it, I am not going to put any restrictions on you, you use it all as you see fit. (laughs) What an incredible decree for a king to make. And Artaxerxes is seemingly taken even beyond what Cyrus had said. You take it all. The vessels also that are given you for the service of the house of your God, those deliver you before the God of Jerusalem, because they were among uh, the treasures in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, storage as well. Verse 21, And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, do make a decree to all the treasurers which are beyond the river, the Atlantic, that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. Verse 23, Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? He had a certain grasp of history, apparently. And when these Jews asked for what Cyrus had decreed, he said, just do it. And I don't want God coming down on me, so you just do anything you think you need to do to serve your God. And it won't come back on me. What an incredible giving attitude he had. So there's kind of the story about the gold and the silver from Ezra. Now let's go to the book of Haggai. Here again we have an end time book. Undoubtedly, he says in verse 21 of chapter 2, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen and break it all down. Well, that sounds like the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. God, in Matthew 24 and other scriptures, where God says at the end time this is going to happen. So when we read Haggai and Zechariah, we're not just reading about the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, where we just came from. We're reading about another fulfillment at the end of the age. Clearly, that's the setting here. So, yes, Zerubbabel and Joshua were involved with Ezra uh, in building the temple and were doing the oversight of it there. But this is a different temple in the end time. And he says, the people say it's not time to build the Lord's house. Well, that's an end time prophecy because... In that day of Ezra and Nehemiah, 42,360 people showed up, not counting, I think, women and servants and so on. So they weren't saying don't do it. They were on board. Let's get her done. 
But here at the end, I've already encountered that a lot. When I've preached about needing to build a physical temple here at the end. People reject that almost completely. Almost everyone. Now the Jews are just going to build a temple over there. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. Well, Ezra and Haggai and, excuse me, Zerubbabel and Joshua are the two witnesses at the end. They're going to do the final work of God in preaching to the world for three and a half years. And they're the ones that God says to build a temple to. So it has to be in time. And not only that, it has to be physical. Because nobody that I have ever met in the church has ever made any complaint when you said we need to build a spiritual temple of God. Nobody disagrees with that. But almost universally, they disagree when you say, there has to be a temple, physical temple built here at the end. That they almost totally reject. That's what Haggai's talking about. People rejecting that idea. So then God says, go up to the mountains, bring wood, build a house. That's physical. And I'll take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. That's what he really basically said to Solomon in that day. And the same thing happened in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. He says, his house is waste, and you run every man to his own house. That's pretty well the way we are in our material society today, there in verse 9. So he says he brings a remnant of the people. Isaiah 6 says it's one out of ten that will show up. Seven women take hold of one man from Isaiah 4. Uh, from all seven churches will take hold of Zerubbabel. He's the, uh, he's the number one leader. Okay. Now, he says to be strong and work. Uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And he says that my spirit remains with you. Don't fear. Verse 5. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. So he says here in the beginning of chapter 2, that it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth. Then they go through the building of the temple, And you get to verse 21, and he says, I will shake. So, it's a little while until it happens as the temple is being built. Then once the temple is built, now he says, I will do it. It's immediate, not a little while, but now it's time that I'll shake everything once the temple is built. Now, once that temple is built, it is in conjunction with the building of Jerusalem from Daniel 9. And at the end of that 70 weeks from the order to build Jerusalem, the abomination is set up in the temple, the church flees to Zion, and the heavens and the earth begin to shake. That's the way it works out. Now, let's go down a verse. Verse 8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. 
the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Now, Herbert Armstrong built what he put on a plaque, a house for God. And within it, there were some fixtures that had gold overlay. There were, it was a beautiful and a magnificent building, no doubt about it. I was there at the groundbreaking, and they had a golden shovel. <laughs> I'm sure it was fake gold that Mr. Armstrong dug the first uh, scoopful at, at the groundbreaking. But it was a beautiful edifice. It had a little bit of gold in it. Okay? But he says this latter house will have greater glory than the first. Now, I, I do believe that he's speaking both physically and spiritually. The former house was not what he wanted it to be spiritually, nor was the house for God what he intends ultimately. And all are now gone. The church was spewed out and forgotten, and the house for God is no longer a house for God. Gentile, spiritually speaking, have taken it over. And they've destroyed most of the buildings that were on the campus. It's just basically gone. But this is going to be far greater. But notice he says there's gold and silver involved. Okay? Get it? True story. Gotta be. Now we've been reading the pattern of what's happened in the past. Solomon had all this gold so he could cover the whole thing with gold. Then Ezra and Nehemiah told you can have all the gold you can find basically on earth. The whole province of Babylon. So, what about the end? Let's go to Isaiah 44. Remember the attitude that Cyrus and Artaxerxes had about building the temple and then with Nehemiah building Jerusalem's wall. Go back to Isaiah 44. Now, where are we in Isaiah 44? Herbert Armstrong died, end of Isaiah 39, and his sons became powerless eunuchs out in the world trying to do the work of God and not getting it done. God's going to get it done through his remnant and his witnesses, but it's not getting done now. So they're powerless to do anything and are not accomplishing anything. Forty begins a new work. I'll send a messenger in the wilderness, prepare a way for God. And what is the message? All men is as grass, and they're all going to wither and fade. And then God begins to show how he's going to plant a tree, in the tree, seven trees in the wilderness, seven women taking hold of one man, there in uh, chapter 41, verse 19, uh, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of God has done this. And he's going to show what will happen, verse 22 of 41, and know the latter end of them. So we're talking here about the end. This is a prophecy about the end. And it's a prophecy about the work at the end. From Herbert Armstrong forward, I've raised up, verse 21, one from the north, he'll come from the east and call upon my name. And he'll come on princes as upon mortar, and the potter treads clay. What will the two witnesses do? Send plagues like the plagues of Egypt whenever and wherever they wish. 
stop the rain like Elijah did for as long as they wish. Three and a half years is the amount of time they have. So, all I'm doing is setting the time frame here by these comments. Let's go on over to chapter 44, uh, or 43 actually, uh, verse 10. He says, You are my witnesses, says the Eternal, and my servant whom I have chosen. You go on down to verse 12. You are my witnesses. Fear not, he says in 43, verse 1. That's what he tells us there in Haggai. Fear not. The ones who are called, that 10%, are going to be the witnesses that God is God. And two will lead them and do most do the preaching. Now, he says again in chapter 44, verse 8, You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. So God is going to have people at the end who are going to say, Gaia isn't God. Satan isn't God. The God of creation is God. Stand against the whole world who have accepted and worshipped the beast. This can only be speaking of the end time church of God, no one else. Now, Isaiah, therefore, being an end time prophecy book, will go out to here in 44, verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. What did we read yesterday in uh, Haggai? Or, uh, no, Zechariah 3. It says our sins will be forgiven in one day. Probably Passover is what he's talking about, because it is in the first month that he returns his blessings. Okay? Joel 2. Sing, you heavens, for the Eternal has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth, bring forth into singing. And then he says that God frustrates, verse 25, the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad, people who thought they understood prophecy, that turn wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish. Now, God is going to display what? Understanding and wisdom and knowledge of him and what he's doing that's going to make everybody stand back and say, wow, isn't that kind of what we just read about Solomon's situation? Everybody saw what was going on and they stood back and said, wow. Same thing here. The diviners, the satanic worshipers, turn them around and make their knowledge foolish. Same thing happened with Moses and the and Pharaoh's magicians. Ultimately made them look foolish. God has always done this in every age. He's going to do it here again. And what you and those who come to help you are going to do is make this world look like fools. Because they are. <laughs> See, they don't understand God. And you are his witnesses that he is God. That is an incredible responsibility that God is laying on you who have come early and those who are soon to come. Let's go on. That confirms the word of his servant, 
that is, his signet Zerubbabel, uh, and performs the counsel of his messengers, the two. Now, it's going to introduce another person here. You had Ezra and Nehemiah. You had uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel there in Ezra. But you had the king also, royalty involved. And uh, Solomon was involved with the royalty of the world. We didn't get to it and probably won't, but the queen of Sheba and others came and brought gifts and all kinds of things to Solomon. So God confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. The word is in here. The story is in here. And God is going to confirm it. He's going to do it. Okay? That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. So, the cities of Judah, here at the end, are not inhabited. The decayed places will be built and inhabited. Jerusalem, it says, specifically in several scriptures, has been desolate for many generations, and no man would live there. So, wherever Jerusalem is, and wherever the cities of Judah are, they are not today inhabited. The nation of Israel and the cities and that Jerusalem are inhabited. That's not the place. It doesn't fit this. God is going to raise up that which is in decay and is not inhabited. And it will astound the world and make them so feel so foolish. When God does what He does, that says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. He's saying, This is the God that dried up the Red Sea. This is the God that dried up the Jordan and let His people go across. This is the God that's going to do miracles at the end in the same form and fashion that He did before to confirm what you're hearing today out of this book. That says of Cyrus, so here we have an end time Cyrus. Here's someone commissioned to do in the end time what the original Cyrus did in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is an end time prophecy. That's why I went through some of that to show you the time setting. So here's Cyrus. He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. So Cyrus was willing to do the original, anything to help build the temple in Jerusalem, wasn't he? And then when Artaxerxes followed up, he says, take it all, do it, use it as you see fit. Now we have an end-time Cyrus, whom God is using, and this one says, or this one, God says, will perform all my pleasure. Anything God wants done, this guy at the end is going to do, whether he likes it or not. I know the man. I think I know him quite well. 
And I know that he only wants to do what he wants to do. But somehow in there, there's going to be a change. And he's going to say, I don't want the wrath on my head. Do whatever you want to do. Guaranteed. Okay? And here's what this man says. He'll do all of God's pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now, you go to Daniel 9, and it says there that the temple will be defiled, the Jerusalem will be built and be, and be defiled. Now, is that spiritual? No. Because Christ says, when the temple is defiled, the people are to flee to Zion. Matthew 24. Doesn't say Zion there, but all the other scriptures do. So it is a physical temple taken over by the beast and the false prophet. And they defile the temple of God. And then they set up their headquarters there. I could show you that in Daniel 11. Well, I probably will go there here in a minute. So this end-time man is going to say, Jerusalem will be built, and the temple, your foundation, will be laid. Now, Zerubbabel laid the foundation of the spiritual temple there in Zechariah 4, and God says, your hands will finish it. But here, this Cyrus says the foundation will be laid, and he's a physical man, and he's talking about the physical. And I'll show you in a moment, he isn't converted, so he's not talking about the church. Can't be. He's talking about a physical temple. Now in 45, he says, Thus says the Eternal to his anointed, here's someone that God has designated to do a job, to Cyrus. And I'm going to show you some things about Cyrus here that put him in in a sense, the same category as the original Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, here is an individual to whom God is going to frighten the nations. The loins of kings will be loosed. You know what that means? That means they dirtied their pants. It's going to scare them so bad. When your loins are loosened, you lose control. Okay? What this man does is going to shake them up so badly that they'll mess their pants. To open before him the two leave gates and the gates shall not be shut. When God opens it up, no man can shut it. The kings of the earth can't shut it. They can't do anything about it. They realize they can't because God will be a wall of fire and a defense around it, and they can't do a thing. But wouldn't you think it would have to be something pretty powerful to do that to the rulers of the earth? These are the words of God. I'm not dreaming this. That's what it says right here. They'll mess their pants. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. 
So something that God does for this man, he's going to lead him through it, and he's going to remove all the obstacles that were in the way, and he's going to reveal something. Now, I have read many accounts of people looking for the greatest treasure on earth. Columbus came here looking for it. He wasn't going to India. He was coming here. He had maps of this continent. And he was looking for those treasures. Hitler had men right here in southern Utah during World War II looking for this treasure. Wesley Powell came out allegedly to survey, but he had mercury in his belongings because he was looking for gold. He wanted gold more than he did survey stakes. There are treasure books written, and there are people searching all over the American West for the treasures of, uh, oh, I can't say it there, east of Phoenix, uh, the Superstition Mountains. They've gone over those superstitions with a fine-tooth comb. There's a museum right there about the Superstition Mountains and the treasures of gold that are rumored to be there, from the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Spanish who came up here, mining gold, on and on the stories go. There are people searching the Uinta Mountains in northern Utah like crazy looking for these treasures that are rumored to be hidden. Now, white men named the Uintas in northern Utah the Uintas. The Indians call the ones in southern Utah the Uintas. The Indians call the mountains in southern Utah the Superstition Mountains. White man named the ones down out east of Phoenix superstitions, not the Indians. These are the superstition mountains. These are the ones the Navajos, the Hopis, and various others call their place of origin. They came from southern Utah. They believe that. They teach that. Oh. Uh, What's his name? The archaeologist uh, had the movies here about Zindel Jones. Indiana Jones, the movies were about. Well, that name came from Zindel Jones, who's an archaeologist who has been over there in the Middle East looking for the treasures for decades. And he's found one little thing he calls an anointing bottle is all he's found so far. He came to southern Utah. Because he read enough stuff to think that they might have been here. So Zindel Jones came here looking for it. Where is the story about Indiana Jones made? It's about Washington, D.C. and Mount Rushmore and stuff in the United States. Not the Middle East. Does somebody know something somewhere? Solomon lived here. David lived here. The treasures are here. Okay. I'll go before you and I'll break all the obstacles. Verse 3, And I will give you 
the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So he says to Cyrus, I'm going to show you these things, and then you're going to know that I'm the God of Israel, because I'll guarantee you today, this man Cyrus does not have a clue who God is. I've been around him now since 2000, into 2006. And he doesn't know who God is. That will be confirmed here some more. But he's going to give him the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. God has hidden his treasures. The temple ornaments, the temple vessels, still exist. Some think they're in the Middle East. Some think they're in Ethiopia. They've got different places they think they are. And then in verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, who are his elect? Those who serve him are his servants, and his elect are those whom he's called here at the end time, his church. Now this Cyrus thinks he is the head of the church of the firstborn. And he wants me to become part of his church of the firstborn. No. I am part of the church of the firstborn of the Bible. Says it there in Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. We are the church of the firstborn. It says in, I think it's Isaiah, something about the saints of the latter day. Well, the Mormons have taken that without keeping the commandments and declared themselves the latter day saints. No, they're Mormons. They're not Latter-day Saints. I am sitting and looking at Latter-day Saints. That's you. That's you. We're the church of the Latter-day Saints, not the Mormons. They don't keep God's commandments. They don't know who God is. We do. So he's doing this for his servants and his elect. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. So this Cyrus has not known God, and God gave him his last name. I've told the story before. There was in France a farmhouse, and one night somebody dressed like a nobleman came, knocked on the door, and handed his young son to the farmer and said, please take care of my son, and if I'm not back in a year, I'm dead and he's yours. This Cyrus, whom I know, in telling the story, did not know the name of the farmer, did not know the name of the man who brought the child there. Now that child grew, and when he was old enough, he joined the French Navy, or Foreign Legion, whatever it was. 
And he took the name of LeBaron, the Baron, which is a noble title. Low on the totem pole, but a Baron is uh, a noble title. So this guy did not give the name of the farmer, and he didn't know the name of his father, so he just took the name LeBaron. And now, this modern-day man named LeBaron goes back, and he says that he's kin to uh, David, and that he is in the lineage of Christ. And LeBaron is a royal name that goes back. And I confronted him with that, again, not too long ago. And I said to him, you claim to be from Christ, you claim to be the church of the firstborn, and you claim this heritage on the strength of the name LeBaron. And it says, you don't have a clue what your lineage is. Because you're the one that told me the story about the French farmer and the kid that was brought and assuming the name LeBaron. So you're not a LeBaron by birth. You don't know what your name is. He did not appreciate that. In fact, we're barely on speaking terms at this point. But what does this say? I have given you a name, and you don't know me. Okay? So this Cyrus, who says that Jerusalem will be built and the foundation of the temple laid, doesn't know God. He isn't in the true church of the firstborn, for sure. He's a pagan with all kinds of pagan beliefs, reincarnation, and all the garbage of Satan. And you know what he said to me not long after I met him? It was in January of 2007 he said this, sitting in his house at his desk, and I was familiar with this scripture, but I didn't know how it applied yet. And he said to me, the temple in Jerusalem have to be built right here in Iron County. And I had to pick my jaw up off the floor. Because he said those words, quoted from here, and did not know he was saying it from here. Now he thinks that everything's over in uh, uh, Kane County, Utah. Changed on that. But he said this right here in Iron County, and that's where Jerusalem is. Now let's go on down. You've not known me. Verse 5, I am the Eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. That's the third time he actually says, you don't know me. But I've been here clothing you and taking care of you and girding you to do the job that I gave you to do. And I'm going to give you these treasures. And you're going to agree that the temple and Jerusalem have to be built. Now, what's the point? Verse 6, That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, worldwide, around the world, that there is none beside me. 
I am the Lord and there is none else. I'm the one who formed the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. Drop down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation. And let righteousness spring up together. I, the Eternal, have created it. (coughs) It sounds like God is going to open up the ground and let these treasures, secret treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places be made manifest. And the point is that the whole world may know who God is, and they will also then know who God's people are, because this is associated with salvation and righteousness. So it can only be the end-time church that he's talking about here. That this carnal, human man with a noble title that God laid on him, he took for himself, but God says, I'm the one that actually was behind it. It could have been Jones or Smith or something. But he wanted him to have a lower noble title. The Baron. And his name, first name is Ross, which is the root of Cyrus. Cyrus. It's all there. And when this opens, the gold and the silver is mine, says the Eternal. I don't think the, the man himself is probably even going to open this. It says the earth will open. And this will be brought forth as a sign of righteousness and salvation. And who will be preaching salvation and righteousness? We are his witnesses that he is God. It says it several times leading up to this particular passage. And it will be two of those end-time witnesses who go out and preach it to the world. Now, I submit to you that what God is going to do is going to make kings and rulers around this world mess their britches. This is going to be stupendous. King Solomon's mines are in southern Utah. The treasures of the temple are buried in southern Utah. Original Jerusalem is in southern Utah, as is Zion. And we went there yesterday. Count the towers of Zion, the joy of all the land. That's that valley we were in. It's beautiful. But God is going to uncover such incredible treasures that it will dwarf all the gold in China, all the gold in Fort Knox, if any, and in Switzerland and London. It is going to be so stupendous that they're going to stand back and lose control. It will be so enormous. And then God will use it to build the final temple. Ezekiel 40 through 48 talks about the final temple. I'm out of time. Maybe we'll take a look at that tomorrow. But understand that what is about to happen is going to be greater than anything that has ever happened before. And if Solomon had that much gold, his mines are here. And the gold that was mined 
is there. And I do suspect that when we build the final temple, it will be overlaid, all of it, with gold. Bring the wood, build it, stones, then overlay it with gold. That's what Solomon did. Ezra and Nehemiah had all the gold that they could possibly find, and God is going to give us most of the gold that is on earth. It says the gold and silver is mine there in Haggai 2. It's his. And this Cyrus is going to do all of God's pleasure, just like the original Cyrus and Artaxerxes did. He ain't going to like it, but he's going to get converted to that idea. Whether he's converted to God or not, I don't know. But when he sees this, it will loose his loins. And it's going to scare him so bad that he says, do what you want, whatever you need, just do it, because I don't want the wrath of that God coming down on me, because finally I know who he is. And I am scared. And I'm going to love it when that happens, because I've dealt with this man for a lot of years, and it's been painful. And it's going to be fun to watch him stand there and mess his britches. Maybe I'll take a nice towel along with me. It's going to happen, brethren. You are his witnesses that he is God. Let's prepare ourselves to be faithful witnesses of God.